appreciate Ben and all his work each week in putting together the songs that we'll be singing. And that last song was such a, a wonderful blend of the importance of doctrinal fidelity and how that oddly seems to keep interacting with the doctrine of the resurrection. So I see what you did there, Ben. And a perfect way to set our hearts for our time in the Word this morning. It's been a joy to work our way through 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, what a wonderful chapter to just stop and look for this long extended period on the gospel and more specifically on the resurrection as Paul is addressing this issue going on there in the church where there were some in the church in Corinth who for various social, political, cultural issues were saying, yeah, no, you know, maybe Jesus rose in some kind of spiritual fashion, but there's no bodily resurrection for people. That's, that's not a thing. And Paul says, hold on. And for 58 verses, he says, do you know what happens if you take the doctrine of our resurrection away? And he's been working his way through just exposing how vital the resurrection is to our Christian faith and to what it means to be a Christian at all. And this morning he's going to turn his attention not just to the theological implications, not just the way that it affects our belief, but to the way that it affects our living and how we actually function. And an interesting thing happened this week in the world of church politics that actually made me think of this passage in what was a very closely watched vote, a very large conservative evangelical denomination took the historic action of disfellowshipping one of their largest churches. And it was a divide that occurred over an issue of doctrine, over a belief. And there were a couple things about that situation that stood out to me in light of our text this morning. And one was how the issue was framed. Uh, the, the famous nationally known pastor who recently retired came to the defense of, of his church that was being disfellowshipped with this argument. He said, hey, our, our denomination, we have this doctrinal document that's thousands of words long, well over 4,000 words long. And he claimed his church only disagreed with one of those words. So how could that possibly be a good reason for disfellowshipping when it's just one word? And it turned out that the overwhelming majority of those voting on the issue believed that that one word was an issue too important to compromise on. That that one word would, if abandoned, lead to a domino effect undermining the authority of God's word as a whole. But the second thing that caught my attention was in the aftermath of that vote, how this pastor, having lost that vote, sent out a bulletin to the media for covering the story and trying to paint the situation in a more positive light. And in the midst of that, that bulletin, he made this point. He said, you know, many of those who were voting on that issue this week, they're getting up there in years. And so he said he was looking to the younger generation and he felt confident that the youth of today won't care about votes, won't care about conference rules and procedures, will only care about causes and movements that will make the, the change that he wants inevitable, given enough time. And you know what? He might be right. The history of the church is full of sad examples of how this inevitable change plays out over and over, coming about on the tides of passion and not the refining fire of truth. And what many, many realize too late is that so much more 
then mere doctrinal questions are on the line. If you mess with Christ's teaching, you always end up messing with Christian living. And that's what Paul is going to be warning us against this morning as he continues to examine the fallout that comes from denying the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of the dead. And so if you have your copy of God's Word and you're willing one last time to stand with me, would you read with me 1 Corinthians 15? We'll be looking at verses 29 to 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 34. Paul says this, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Would you pray with me? Father, as we turn to this passage this morning that begins with a difficult verse to understand and ends with a pointed verse of shame. I pray that in the midst of this rebuke from Paul, we would also find our encouragement. Our encouragement that if we will cling to what you have revealed, and if we will remain faithful to those who love you, that we shall be able to honor you and be a church which is able to bring glory to its head. For it is to that head, to Jesus Christ, that we desire to see all glory be given. And so in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we even discussed there at the beginning, I, I think our, our main point, our main thought this morning is pretty straightforward. Truth motivates Christ-like living. So fellowship with the faithful. And we'll see that again later. But truth motivates Christ-like living, so fellowship with the faithful. And Paul's going to show us this by demonstrating negatively what happens when we allow bad doctrine into our thinking and bad company into our fellowship. And so if you're taking notes this morning, our first point is this from verses 29 to 32. Bad doctrine is demoralizing. Bad doctrine is demoralizing. Verse 29 begins this way, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? This is one of those verses in 1 Corinthians that Ben and I did rock, paper, scissors on, and I lost. Because it's hard. And I begin right off the bat by saying, I'm not entirely sure what it means. But I think we can get close enough to understand the point that Paul is making. Some believe that this verse refers to the process of, of vicariously baptizing someone on behalf of someone else who has died to somehow secure a spiritual blessing or even salvation for them. To seek to be able to baptize individual A to try to accomplish for the departed, the deceased individual B, what they did not accomplish in life. And that's a view that's been around for a long time. In fact, heretics as old as Marcion, who lived 
so long ago that he was actually born before the book of Revelation was written, all the way up to modern day groups like the Mormons hold this view. They believe that you can baptize an individual on behalf of somebody who's dead and, and accomplish some kind of spiritual benefit from them. Scripture, however, makes it very clear that inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Once you have left this life, once you have died, there is no more spiritual good that can be done for you, either because you have now been judged or because you've been perfected. And in either case, there is nothing left to be done for them, for their benefit. They have entered into their eternal state. You can't do remedial spiritual work for the dead. So this then can't be what Paul is referring to, particularly because he's using it as a positive example here. If the Corinthians were doing some kind of odd, vicarious baptism ritual in their church in error, Paul would be writing to condemn them for it, not using it to prove his point. So I don't believe there's any case that can be made that that's what he's referring to. What then might it mean? Well, I think there are several viable options. Some people understand this passage to mean that some Christians may have died before they had a chance to be publicly baptized and declare that faith. And perhaps close friends or relatives were being baptized in their place, not to accomplish some spiritual good for them, but sort of as a way to publicly declare on behalf of their departed loved one the decisions that they had already made in life, but had been unable to do before they passed. That's possible. Others understand here that perhaps Paul is referring to the fact that baptism itself is a symbol of death and resurrection, and everyone who is baptized does, does so with reference to death or with reference to the dead. And in your translation, you'll see that most of your translations say baptized for the dead, and that word for there in Greek is famously stretchy in what it can mean. So that's, that's possible. Another view is that it could be Paul is referring here to the powerful testimonies of those who had been martyred for Christ. And if there was no resurrection from the dead, why would people be declaring their public faith in Jesus Christ on the basis of those who were simply going to rot in their tombs? And I perhaps lean personally towards option three there, but it seems impossible to land with complete confidence. But there is something that we can say for sure. Paul is connecting three things together here that you can't separate. Baptism, death, and resurrection. Those three things always come together. You can't have a baptism without having a picture of death and resurrection. That's what baptism is. And what a joy it was to see that even last week as we were at church in the park and, and witnessed all those baptisms, those pictures of death and resurrection. And so Paul is connecting those three things together and he's telling the Corinthians, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then what's up with baptism? We should just sort of dunk them and hold them under. The Christian life is a story of following our Savior in death with the hope of resurrection. And if you take that doctrine away, you end up in big trouble, as Paul goes on to illustrate here. And he's going to use the example of his life and the life of the, excuse me, and the lives of the other apostles. Because without a doctrine of resurrection, their entire lives are, as he put it a few verses ago, most to be pitied. 
And so look at Paul going on here in verse 30 to say, Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Those are strong words. And they're not an exaggeration. Paul, as you may remember, is writing probably from Ephesus to the church there in Corinth. So you've got Corinth right on the southern end of of Greece, right across from Athens. But then across the sea to the uh, east of Corinth, you have Asia Minor, where Paul's been traveling and doing his missionary work. And he's writing from the midst of that work in Ephesus right now. A little later, he's going to write a book to this church again, what we call 2 Corinthians, after finishing up most of that work. And he gives us, in a couple different passages there, a rundown of what he's talking about when he writes these verses. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, he writes this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. And again, think Asia Minor, think Turkey, not China and Japan and places like that. For this affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Ever heard somebody tell you, God will never give you anything that's too much for you to handle? We did to Paul. So sometimes I think he puts us in positions that we can't handle, so that he can show us what he can handle. Paul says he was burdened beyond his strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Can you see why these two doctrines are important for Paul? Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. He would go on later in that book in Second Corinthians 11, describing his ministry to those who were once again in the church of Corinth, challenging Paul, challenging his credentials, challenging his apostolic authority and his commitment to the cause of Christ. And, and Paul writes in Second Corinthians 11:23, "Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number." which I looked that up, that's a lot of times. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. And so that the Gentiles wouldn't be left out. Three times I was beaten with rods. You'll notice even on some of our American symbology, you'll see a cluster of rods tied together in a bundle. That's from the Roman culture because the Roman magistrate would carry an axe wrapped with rods tied in a bundle over his shoulder when he waltzed into town, and then he'd begin to adjudicate business. And they decided you're a public nuisance, he'd take out a couple rods and he'd give you a good beating with them. And if they decided that you were a public menace, he'd take out his axe and remove something that you couldn't afford to lose. Once I was stoned, says Paul, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, 
dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea. Listen to this, dangers among false brethren. Even when Paul would make it to the end of his journey and get into the church, he found more danger. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who was led into sin without my intense concern? And so when Paul writes here about this life of struggle, this life that he says he can summarize as, I die daily, this is what he's referring to. And imagine putting yourself into his shoes. We, we have the benefit of history. We can step back. We can read the completed story of, of Christianity as it unfolded in the book of Acts. We can read our New Testament epistles and the teaching that went to the churches. We are sitting here in Spokane Valley, and we can attest to the fact that these believers were faithful to pass on the gospel to others, who were faithful to pass on the gospel to others, who spread it around the world, even to here. We can do that. However, that wasn't Paul's life. When Paul was called to the Gentiles, it was a pretty shaky business. As he began to travel around, he would labor hard in these towns and these cities, seeing converts coming here by ones and twos and trying to put together these, these infant churches and giving them as much teaching as he could and trying to help set up leadership as best as he was able to. But he knew when he was moving on to the next town that they were in their infancy, largely untaught, and that persecution was right at their heels. And worse than that, Paul had this group of Jews that were chasing him in a loop, literally, around Asia Minor, so that every time he moved on, they would swoop in behind and dive into those churches and say, hey, I know what, you, I know what that Paul guy told you, but let me give you the real deal. And they'd immediately begin to undermine his teaching. They'd immediately begin to under, undermine his authority and begin replacing the sound teaching of the word he had given them with false doctrines. And so Paul was spending all of his time dealing with persecution from all around, hard circumstances, long walks through rugged wilderness terrain, with a body that's becoming increasingly worn down through the abuse that it suffered. And he's constantly hearing reports from all these places he's poured out his heart that things are not going well, things are falling apart. And he's writing this letter to Corinth because that's happening there too. And you can imagine just how hard that would be how many times he must have wondered god i'm gonna die i can't dodge death too many more times and after i'm dead these churches are going to collapse who's going to be there to care for them he was a real man facing real struggles a real hardship and even in the city of ephesus where he's got time to sit down and write these letters he's dealing with hardship there as well look at verse 32 if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Now it is possible that he somehow was fighting off real wild beasts because real wild beasts were a thing. In fact, one of the interesting things as I got a chance to travel around uh, the round Turkey, not this, not too long ago, about half a year ago, was to see how many ancient carvings there are of lions. And you thought, wow, they must have gone on a lot of African safaris over there in Turkey. Turns out, no, lions were indigenous to Turkey. There were a lot of wild beasts. It was dangerous out there. And you could be occasionally thrown to a coliseum to face some that had been made particularly cranky. 
We don't have any record of Paul facing that there in Ephesus. It's more likely that what he's referring here is to the struggle he faced that he writes about later here in 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, verse 9. He says, a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so it would seem that most likely he's referring here too to the persecution, to the opposition that he was facing there in Ephesus as he tries to make his case in the public forum for the gospel. And if you're reading all of this struggle and you're reading all of this difficulty, you might be coming to the point where you're saying, you know, Paul, maybe your detractors have a point. Maybe you're making life just a lot a bit too hard on yourself. Have you ever met that person who's like an avid exerciser and an avid dieter, and they're always trying to get you to join them, but they are miserable like there's the happy ones who are like bouncing with energy. Like, come on, this is great. I love exercise. I'm talking about the one who's like, I have no energy. Life is hard. You should totally do it, bro. That guy, right? Have you met that guy? And you're going, you know, no. That doesn't sound like fun. Or there's the golfer who, who loves golfing. They're obsessed with golfing, but one club always ends up getting chucked into the pond during every game out of frustration. And you're like... Why do you say you like this game? You, you clearly hate this game. Or the, the political enthusiast who, who says, I love politics, but they're always yelling at their television every time the news comes on. I don't think that word means what you think it means. And you could look at somebody like Paul and say, man, Paul, slow down, brother. Why are you taking this so seriously? Why are you pushing yourself to such extremes? Why are you allowing yourself to be under such hardship all the time? And the answer is because Paul knew that his Savior, Jesus Christ, actually did walk bodily out of a tomb on that first Easter morning. That that actually happened. And Paul fully expected to follow his example one day. Which is why he writes to us in Philippians 2, these words we know so well. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And that's the pattern that Paul is looking to. Humility, obedience, suffering to the point of death, followed by resurrection and glory. And that pattern leads to his appropriate response in verse 12, down a couple of verses. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The life of Christ is the pattern 
pattern, this life of sacrificial obedience is the appropriate response, leading to how Paul summarizes his life just a couple verses down when he says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. That is the life and message of Paul in a nutshell. Because he understood that this life is not all that there is. Because he understood that when Christ came and suffered and died and rose again, that that was the pattern that his followers would also be able to participate in. He says, I don't care if the story of my life is one long drink offering being poured out on an altar where I get nothing back from it, no gratitude, no satisfaction. I have my joy in this that I have been a servant of the Most High God. And would you now add your joy to my joy in the privilege it is to pour ourselves out in service to Christ? That's why Paul did what Paul did. That's why Paul suffered what Paul suffered. But what happens if you take away the doctrine of the resurrection? What happens if you leave everything else in place and you pull out that one word? Well, he tells us. He goes on to say, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection from the dead, that changes everything about how you view the Christian life and how to live it. About how you do your cost-benefit analysis as a believer. And Paul here is quoting when he gives us this phrase, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's quoting from Isaiah 22 in a very interesting section. In Isaiah 22, we have the famous Valley of Vision that the that book of prayers by the Puritans is named after. And in that vision, God is giving a portrayal of his people approaching judgment and the way that their hearts are out of sync with reality on the verge of impending judgment. And so in Isaiah 22:12 you read this, therefore in that day in this day of judgment the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. And Paul goes and pulls this language from Isaiah where God had been chastising his people. You see judgment coming. You see what's upon you. And your response should have been repentance. It should have been mourning. It should have been a realization of what was going on, the spiritual realities at play, and a running back to God to petition grace, to petition mercy. And instead, because they had abandoned the doctrine of the grace of God, they simply said, well, it's not looking good out there. All the polls say things are going bad, so we might as well party because we don't know what tomorrow brings. And God says, that is a sin 
to have left me out of the picture like that is a sin that I will hold against you. And Paul argues that this situation for the Corinthians is no different. For them to look at life with no resurrection in it demoralizes them. It pulls out their motivation for living the sacrificial life after the pattern of their Savior Jesus Christ. It leaves them like the Israelites staring at the same reality that Paul is staring at and coming to the exact opposite conclusion. Instead of being willing to pour out their lives, instead of being willing to sacrifice, to suffer, they'd rather just sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. And is that not exactly what Paul was rebuking them for, even in something as important as communion a few chapters ago? Our lesson here is pretty straightforward. Doctrine excised equals faith demoralized. If you start cutting out your doctrine, you start cutting out the motivation for the Christian life. That's how it works. We cannot separate those. So much of church history has been viewed as a teeter-totter between an emphasis on Christian living and an emphasis on doctrine. And different groups are seen as teetering back and forth on those. And here's the deal. You can't actually have a teeter-totter. As soon as you truly give up one side or the other, the whole thing begins to fall. Because sound doctrine and right living must come together or they will not last long apart. Losing the resurrection in particular is catastrophic. As Paul's been pointing out, if you lose that horizon of resurrection, it suddenly shrinks your view to this life and this life only. And it makes what you experience here and now everything. And have you noticed how that thread runs through so much of our contemporary prosperity gospel and cause-driven Christianity messages? Have you seen that focus on the here and now with a rejection of the eternal consequences, the preaching of happiness without hardships, the teaching on success without sacrifice, on glory without needing grace, on a salvation that doesn't have reference to sin, the championing of new causes and the missing out on the new creation, teasing, here's all you can get, but you don't have to use any sweat. A discipleship without death, holding forth a crown and hiding the cross. We have to learn to smell that, to detect when our faith is being subverted by a focus on this life here and now and a refusal to acknowledge that no, we don't live for here and now, we're living for the resurrection. Because to follow Christ is to take up our cross daily in the hope that whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will, in the resurrection, keep it. And perhaps one reason we see so much apathy in the church today, so little courage and zeal, is that we have allowed the enemy to chip away at our understanding of sound doctrine and replace it bit by bit with cheap substitutes. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not that there's just like false doctrine that permeates the air and we absorb it by osmosis. Paul's going to close this morning by showing us that bad doctrine usually comes from the lips of bad company. And so if you're taking notes this morning, our second point is this. Bad company is corrupting. Bad company is corrupting. Look at the beginning of verse 33 there. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 
When Paul warns them not to be deceived, that implies two things. One is, it's apparently easy to be convinced of something that's not true. And second, we will be sorry if we are. And so he's warning us, don't let that happen. We're warned four times in the New Testament not to be deceived. In 1 Corinthians 6, which we already looked at, here in our passage, Galatians 6 and James 1, and in every single case there's a pattern. In every single case it's a warning against the deceptiveness of sin creeping in and changing how we think about truth. The consequences of sin in eternity, the effect of sinful company on our morals, the inevitable harvest of sinful living and the treachery of our own lusts, these are the things, Scripture says, trip us up that deceive us easily, about which we are not to be deceived. And in our context, Paul is emphasizing this, bad doctrine comes from bad company. Why were the Corinthians being led so far astray on so many things? Well, in part, it was because they tolerated and maintained close fellowship with those who taught bad doctrine. How many of you have noticed it's not hard to spot who the bad guy is in a cartoon? Right? It's not hard. You wait for the feller to come on the screen who's got the long trench coat and the goofy hat, the big mustache, and that vague French accent. Right now you know it is the villain. It would be nice if that's how false doctrine worked in the church, but it doesn't. Bad doctrine can't circulate around by itself. It's like a virus. It needs to be carried by a host. And also like a virus... The delivery method needs to be most suited to maximum spread. And so in the church, bad doctrine often comes from those who sound really compelling, who portray themselves as having buckets of compassion, who seem really nice and sincere and who, and who seem to really get it. And that doesn't mean that you should just try to make friends with mean people to stay safe. But it means this. Our fellowship, those people we allow closest in our lives, who will inevitably shape our thinking and our desires, that needs to be centered on a commitment to truth first. Truth first, not personality first, not how it makes me feel first, not advantages and benefits of the relationship first, not social standing first, truth first. And then all the other things can come into the picture. The Corinthians needed to wake up before their ambivalence to bad doctrine swept the very gospel from under their feet. And that's why Paul ends this rebuke with these strong words. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. Here is the antidote to being deceived by bad company into having bad doctrine that will affect your Christian living and steal your gospel hope. He says we need to abandon a lazy pattern of thinking and repent from a sinful pattern of living. Be sober-minded, he says. And every time you see this word sober-minded in the New Testament, it always accompanies a warning to keep alert. It shows up in warnings about future judgment, preparation for spiritual warfare, engagement in sacrificial hardship, and attentiveness to Satan's prowling around. It means to snap out of a state of spiritual stupor or intoxication and to pay attention. Paul wants to break the spell of the siren call of bad doctrine and call them back to a careful consideration of the truth. 
We need to be lean forward, not lean back Christians. We need not to rest in what we're hearing, but to examine it. We need to be active in taking every thought and holding it up against the grid of Scripture. And secondly, he says, stop sinning. And sometimes it's nice to just see it put in a very uncomplicated way. How many times have you noticed, whether it's in your own life or, or with your children or who you talk to, that there's something going on that's sin? It's, the real issue isn't that they, that they don't know it's sin. Right? You hit your sister, yes. Was that good? No, but. Right? And, and they're hoping that all of the complicated emotional factors that accompany the situation will somehow mitigate the sin that took place. We just need sometimes to say, you know what, God? There's a lot going on here, and it's hard, and my heart's kind of torn up right now, but it's time for me to stop sinning and do what you've called me to do. Stop sinning. And he says sinful living is the same thing as practical agnosticism. When he says, stop sinning, for there's some of you who have no knowledge of God, that phrase, no knowledge of God, it actually comes from the same Greek word we get our English word agnostic from. He says, the people you're listening to there in Corinth, they're basically agnostics. They're claiming to be Christians, they're claiming to have all the answers, but the advice they're giving you is godless. Because it's not what he said. Sinful living is practical agnosticism. Those who have been given the word of God and those who have been instructed in it become responsible for the discernment that needs to accompany that blessing. And so Paul ends here by saying it is shameful that the Corinthians tolerate and even promote false teaching among them. It is a shame. Truth motivates Christ-like living in a way nothing else does. And so we must be vigilant that our fellowship is with those who are faithful to the word of God. And as the music team comes up to close us in song this morning, I want to close with a, with a charge to our fathers and to our youth this morning. To our fathers here, thank you to those of you who have made it your life's work to live out truth and to teach truth. And I want to call on all of us today whether you're a literal father or whether you're a figurative father in the lives of others, be sober-minded. Would you be on the watch for error? Would you not become comfortable and complacent so that you might teach truth carefully and faithfully to the next generation? Do not forget there are those counting on the fact that we will not pass on what we have received and they're intending to capitalize on that. And as soon as we pass off the scene, they intend to build their own revolution on the backs of our children. What do you say to that? What will you do in response to that? And to our youth, to our young men and women, don't be gullible. Both Lenin and Stalin were said to have a special title for those who were easily won over by emotional appeals and who could be turned into a revolutionary army by manipulation of the passions. And that title was Useful Idiot. And I firmly believe that our youth here at VBC may earn a title or two from those who would like to overthrow sound doctrine, but I don't think it will have the word useful in it, at least not for our enemy. 
And to our young people, would you determine that you will love God so completely that his words will be your only guide and that you will seek out faithful fathers and mothers in the faith who will cultivate a deep and pure faith in you. And for all of us, let us renew our commitment to our Savior this morning to let him have all of us to use however he wishes that we will follow him to death itself and have no fear. Why? Because like him and through him, we are no longer able to be contained by a tomb. And that is just one of the many doctrines we go into battle with. Amen? Amen.